we get started, I just wanted to recap uh, 2019. We're at a point in the year in January where the dust has kind of settled, settled on last year. And just want to throw out a huge thank you. And it's amazing what God has allowed us to accomplish. Last year was a huge, huge year for us. Uh, one guy put it this way, you didn't launch a church, it's like you birthed a teenager. And that's really kind of how it is. Uh, it's uh, an amazing thing. Our church over the last, over uh, average Sunday attendance last year was 2,074 between all three campuses. And uh, we saw uh, 259 people in services, you know, e express or tell us that they became believers. 98 people baptized last year. Just, uh, just a super great year. As a matter of fact, um, we are voluntarily connected with a, a um, group of churches called Karis Fellowship. Karis is just the Greek word for grace. And uh, the president of that fellowship, our fellowship, asked to, to come up and meet with me on Friday night. And so he was coming up from Columbus. I actually met him in the great town of Upper Sandusky. And, and we ate Friday night. And he was telling me that he had been listening in to the services at Tiffin. And so since the launch, before the launch and through the launch, he was listening to the message and the services and, and what Zach was saying about what's going on there. And he was just blown away. And really, he, he's as, as, as amazed as we are on what God has done. And, and God did that through you. And uh, if you, you know, I just want to thank you for being faithful to grace. And especially if you give or you serve or, or many of you do both, uh, just thank you. Uh, for your ministry and, and letting God use you in such an amazing way. Cool, cool stuff. Uh, we're in a series wrapping it up today, Hindsight 2020. And we realize that people look back on their past and a lot of times they get stuck. And because of that, they do not know how to move on. And, and we're saying as believers, we should not only know how to move on, we should know how to move on with joy. No matter what we've gone through, no matter what our sin has been, there is a way, a path forward for us to move on with joy. And as we talk about that today, I want to introduce a story of David. And so many of you know King David. Uh, he's a major figure in the Old Testament, the Israel's second king. And a man that's described in scripture as loving God with his whole heart, following God with his whole heart. But, but David had a real downside too, and that's what I want us to see, and then how he moved on from that. Many of you know the story. It was a time uh, in history where, and, and the time of year, one time during David's reign where kings go out to battle. But David didn't go. He sent Joab, his general, and his army out to do battle. But he stayed back in Jerusalem. First mistake, not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And then while he's home in Jerusalem, he notices a beautiful woman from his palace rooftop. He sees her. And then he starts asking about her. Who's, who's this lady? And his servants kind of subtly are trying to point David in the right direction... Because they answer him and they say, oh, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. This is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah the Hittite, Uriah. 
one of your best friends, Uriah, one of the 30 mighty men who have been the most loyal to you and defended you before you even got on the throne, that Uriah, she's his wife. But David doesn't pick up on all that. And so he sends people to get her. She comes to the palace. He commits adultery with her. And then a little bit while after that, she sends word to David, I'm pregnant. So then David's trying to figure out how to do damage control. And so uh, David, the first thing he does is he sends word to his general Joab out in the battle. And he says, send Uriah back to Jerusalem with a report. So Uriah comes to Jerusalem and uh, David asks him how the battle's going. And then his whole plan is that Uriah would be home and sleep with his wife and it would kind of cover up this sin. But Uriah doesn't do that. He sleeps on his doorstep. He doesn't go in. So the next day, David summons him again and says, Hey, uh, why, why, didn't you, why didn't you go into your, to your home? Why don't you spend some quality time with your wife now that you're here in Jerusalem? And Uriah says... Hey, far be it for me to do that. We got Joab and the army are out there camping in the open field, risking their lives. Far be it for me to go into my house and enjoy the company of my wife. So it doesn't work. The next night, David gets Uriah drunk and suggests that he go and spend some quality time with, with his wife. And, and he still doesn't do it. And then the next day, David sends with Uriah an, a message to Joab. And so Uriah takes this to the battlefield, gives it to the general. The general, Joab, reads it. And basically it's a message that he wants Joab to arrange for Uriah to be killed in battle. And that's what happens. The, the battle is hot. It, it, they have besieged a city. And then Joab sends Uriah and some other people... And he intentionally makes a strategic blunder that ends up isolating and exposing Uriah, and Uriah is killed. And then, Uriah, and then David sends back word that Uriah the Hittite, one of David's most loyal men, oldest friends, is dead on the battlefield. Bathsheba hears that. She has a time of mourning. Then David marries Bathsheba. And then it seems at this point in the story that David has wrapped all this up in a nice, neat bow. Boom. Now Bathsheba is his wife. Everything's fixed until God sends to David a man named Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. He's also one of David's friends. And God sends Nathan to confront David about his sin. And you have to understand in those days, kings had absolute authority. Now the king of Israel was a little different because everybody expected him, not only would he have authority, but he was supposed to be following God. But every other king around, there was no, you know, his doing basically did whatever he wanted. They had absolute power. Well, Nathan goes to David and he knows David pretty well. And he comes up with this plan on how he's going to confront David about David's sin, because obviously David's not getting it. David's blind to his own sin. So Nathan goes in before David and he tells him a made-up story. 
He says, there were two men who lived in the same city. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had herds and flocks, and he was just wealthy and just enjoyed the good life. The poor man was just the opposite. The poor man had one little lamb, and he kept that lamb in his house, and he treated that lamb as a pet, and he loved that lamb like it was part of the family. Well, a rich traveler comes into that town, and the rich man is putting him up for the evening. And so he's a guest in his house, and, and hospitality was, was big in the Middle East, and so he knows he's got to provide a dinner, but rather than take a lamb or, or something out of his own herds or flocks, he actually steals the poor man's lamb, slaughters it, and serves that up for dinner for his guests. And when David hears this story, he's outraged. And he says, that man deserves to die. At the very least, he should pay four times restitution, four times the value of this lamb to the, to the poor man to make this right. And then in his outrage, remember what Nathan says? You are the man. You are the man. And David is confronted with his own sin. He sees it finally. And I want to pick up in the story right there. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I want to pick it up right there at the story in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. And then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he had requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said... While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. 
For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Everybody sins. All followers of God sin. It's the question on how we respond to that sin that answers whether we move on in our relationship with God and we move on with joy. And there are actually three steps to do this. And that's the question we all need to be able to answer. How do we move on from sin in our lives? How do we do it? How do we move on from sin in our lives? And how do we move on with joy even? Well, first, to move on, we must recognize our sin. And it's God who can point out our sin. It's God's word. That's what we use today. It's the standard, the measure. We, if we don't recognize our sin, if you don't do this first step, if you're unwilling to recognize your own sin, then you will continue to live your life drifting further and further from God, further and further from God's standard. I've mentioned that I've been working on my barn building a loft. And the next thing I need to do now is to build a staircase. I was just going to have a ladder, but I thought, you know, I can't carry stuff up. The ladder, have you ever tried to let, climb a ladder while you're carrying stuff? You know, you kind of got to, yeah. So I'm thinking, no, it would be better if I had a staircase. And so then I start trying to figure out how to build a staircase. And, and some of you already, some of you guys who have built staircases, you're going, yeah, Kevin, yeah, hang it up, man. You don't have a chance. But the first thing I needed, I realized, was a square. And I couldn't find my square. I had lost my square, which tells you a lot about last time I used my square. Who knows? But I went down and I bought this brand new shiny builder's square. It is nice. And so this will allow me, the straight edge on this square will allow me to take a plank, theoretically, you know, and measure the, the height of the step with the tread of the step and then mark out the little V's and then cut them out. And theoretically, if I do my math right and I'm covering the distance I want to cover and the height I want to cover at the angle, You'd think that would be 45, but usually not. And then, you know, I can figure all that out. And I'm actually going to put in a landing and a turn because I don't have enough room to go straight down. So it's going to be a little tricky. I'll tell you how that turns out some other time. But anyway. <laughs> but what I do know, whether I can pull that off or not, what I do know is I need one of these to make that happen. Why? Because I need a straight edge. I need something to measure. I need something that's accurate. I can't just go by what I feel. I already know that. I'll be lucky if I pull it off with this. I already know that's not going to work, right? We need a straight edge for our life. We need to be able to measure our life against something that's right, that has a true standard. And if God's word is not your straight edge, you've lost the ability to compare your conscience to a true measure. And you will, by necessity then, drift from God. Because you'll be calling your own shots. And here's the problem. 
people don't want to evaluate their lives according to God's true standard. We have a natural inclination to not want to do that. And you hear it all the time. People will say, hey, I'm good with the Bible. I believe most of the Bible. A lot of people say, I believe the Bible. I'm just not going to do what it says regarding fill in the blank, sexuality, regarding how I should use my money, regard, you know, on, regarding forgiving somebody who's hurt me, on and on and on. Hey, I know what the Bible says. I believe in the Bible. I'm just not going to do conform my life to what the Bible says. And they say, yeah, I know the Bible says that I should forgive people who have hurt me deeply. But I think I'll just keep on plotting my revenge. I think I'll just keep on figuring out how to get even. I saw this play out recently. I'll live by my own ethics. And they'll go on to say, hey, you don't know what I've been through. You cannot judge me. That's what they'll say. God judges us. He is our rightful judge. And as soon as you start thinking that nobody can judge me, I'm doing my own thing. As soon as you start thinking like that, you've gotten rid of your straight edge. And you've created a morality that conforms to your image, that contorts to your life. It won't work. It'll lead you further and further from God. And this is what's tragic about so many churches today. There are a lot of churches today that no longer talk about sin. It's not politically correct. It doesn't sound positive. Whatever the case may be, they don't talk about sin. But if you don't talk about sin, then grace and forgiveness and the cross... Make no sense. The death of Christ doesn't make any sense. And those churches have gutted themselves. They've neutered themselves of the only message that matters. And then they wonder while they're in a free fall of decline. They're not saying anything that matters. They're not speaking truth anymore. And they're people... Just keep drifting and drifting further away from God. God sent David, or Nathan, sorry, God sent Nathan to confront David. And, and I got to tell you, we can all use a Nathan in our lives. So that because we're all, we all have a tendency to be blind to our own sin. So we can all use a David. We could all use a true friend, a Christian friend, a mature Christian friend who will come alongside us and say, what are you doing? Do you realize what you're doing here? Do you see it? To confront us with sin. Nobody likes that word. It's interesting here because David's incensed right at the story. This guy deserves death for stealing. David, on the other hand, has committed adultery with one of his best friends. And then he commits murder to cover it up. David's sin is way worse. 
And God would have every right to take David out right there. Even the law would say death is deserved for what David did. But God doesn't send David an assassin. He sends him a friend. And we need friends like that too. We all need a Nathan to tell us the hard truth. To hopefully force us even to see our own sin. I think that's needed today more than ever because today, it seems like today friendship has been redefined. Friendship today means this to a lot of people. I have somebody who will accept everything I do. They'll accept me and they'll accept everything I do. Everything I do is okay. Why? Because I do it and they're my friend. Friends need truth. And our society is getting a little bizarre on this. I, I got a little video. Here's a college campus. I think it's University of Washington. Just here's what I'm talking about here. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'd be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? 
I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five or Chinese or a woman. People need friends that can tell them the truth. By the way, none of these questions were hard. Right? If they can't answer these questions, how are they going to answer the really hard questions to help their friends? We need someone to speak truth in our life. We need someone to say, hey, you're not seven years old. You may act like it, but you're not seven years old. And you're not a six-foot-five Chinese woman. We've lost our, our moorings on this because people think in order for me to love somebody or care for somebody or to respect somebody, I cannot ever contradict them. That is not true. When we love people, we do contradict them. When we love people, we tell them what's true. When we love people, we help them to see reality. We don't just let them slip in to their own little world. Now, do, are we saying people can't do what they... No, do what you want to do. You want to think you're a woman? Think you're a woman. Just don't expect me to think you're a woman. Because I know you're not. Where is it that they not only think they're a woman... Or, or seven years old, or Chinese, or 6'5", but they're requiring that we think they are too. That makes no sense. And that's where our culture is heading. People need to hear the truth. And here's what I'm telling you. The truth. No matter what you've done, no matter what sin that you've committed, no matter what way you've alienated God, God still wants a relationship with you. And maybe you're as far away from God as you could possibly. Maybe you've done things that would horrify the rest of us to hear it. And even now, God loves you. And he's not sending you an assassin well, right now he's sending you a sermon to remind you that he loves you. We all need a Nathan. And because of Nathan, David finally sees his sin. He's filled with grief and shame. We all need a Nathan. It's one of the reasons that we do church together. One of the reasons we're doing home groups together. It's because we all need Christian friends so however you need to make that happen, 
Maybe it's not groups. Maybe it's, some, maybe it's the groups we have here at church. Or maybe it's the home groups that we're starting. Whatever it is, you need to make sure that you have Christian friends that are not afraid to speak into your life a little bit. Because we all need that. Sometimes people recognize their sin. They get it. They see it. But then they refuse to take the next step to Step two out of three is this. To move on, we must repent of our sin. A lot of people will recognize their sin, but they will not repent. They're just saying, hey, well, this is what I'm doing. Hey, sorry, God, but I'm still doing this because it's what I want to do. And if you do that, if you continue in your rebellion against God, well, that's leading you to some bad places, further and further away from God. But also, if you're a true child of God, that is leading you to be disciplined by God. The loving discipline of God, just like we would discipline our children whom we love, God will discipline us if that's what it takes to bring us back. That's, your, that's the way you're heading. Alienation and discipline. And how do we repent? We repent by changing our mind about God is, is the classic way that then leads to a change in our behavior as we follow him. We have to recognize our sin, then repent of our sin. And here's what David does. He admits his sin against God. And then Nathan says, well, here's what God says. Even though you deserve to die, you will not die, but there are still some consequences that you will face in your life. And we're reminded that when we sin, when you and I sin, innocent people will be hurt. When you commit adultery... It will tear up your family. When I do something against God, that, there's always a negative impact on our church family, on my family. Anytime we sin against God, innocent people stand to get hurt. And what's amazing about this passage as we talk about repentance and how that works out in God's life, is we not only see the narrative, which is written for us in 2 Samuel, and we've read from chapter 12. And so the narrative is the outside story. What's happening? What happened to David? How did this guy did this? He did that. What happened? How did he react? We have all that. But for this story in Scripture... We also not only have the outside story, we have the inside story about what's happening in David's heart. And we read that in the, in the book of Psalms that David wrote. And I want to read you one, one of those. This is from Psalm 51, which is a classic psalm for repentant sinners. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. And I'm advising you this. Anytime you feel that you have been overtaken by a sin and you're crushed by it and you're trying to find the words to come back to God, Psalm 51 will help you with that. This is what David was feeling at the time of this event in history of his life. He says this. 
Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And this is David on the ground. He's not on the floor. He's outside the palace, maybe in a courtyard somewhere, on the ground. And he's in the middle of his consequences for his sin. And it seems like God is saying something to David like this. You know, David, hey, you're going to build your whole life on this child. And you're going to ruin your life. And you're going to ruin the child's life. And I'm going to take him home to be with me. Did it work? Yeah. But did you notice what David's saying here? Something kind of... Did you notice that part when I read that against you, you only, I have sinned? Anybody have a question about that? Excuse me, David. Seems like that list is a little short. Against you, God, you only? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about Uriah? You slept with his wife and murdered him. What about Bathsheba? Did you sin against her? What about Joab that you, co- you got him to help you murder Uriah? Seems a little short. Well, I think here's why. Because our repentance is first directed to God. And all of our sin begins with sin against God. Any sin we do really starts with a violation of the very first commandment. Any of the other commandments we break, adultery, murder, David did, but it all started with not keeping God first in his life. All sin flows out of our rebellion against God, and breaking the first command is what leads us to break the other nine. And God by far is the most significant one that we've sinned against. What I'm saying is David sinned more against God than he did even Uriah or Bathsheba or Joab. He sinned against God. And he admits it. It's interesting because every day we see this playing out in marriages, even marriages inside the church. where people will kind of admit their sin in a real soft way. Hey, pastor, you know, I know I'm not perfect, and I know I haven't always been the spouse that I should be. But my husband, my wife, she's a real piece of work. I mean, she's got issues way beyond anything that I deal with. And people are really refusing to recognize and repent of their own sin because they keep seeing someone else's. People want others to change, but they don't want to change. 
And part of it, I think, is that they don't recognize that their sin is not only against their spouse, it's also against God, because they'll think their spouse deserves it. God doesn't. So we blame others for our sin. We ignore our sin. We cover up our sin like David. We have all these different ways of responding. And then we respond to the consequences because we've never really faced our sin. When consequences come, then, hey, we get depressed and joyless and experience despair. I'm convinced many people live joyless lives because they refuse to use their hindsight to recognize that they've sinned and then to repent of that sin. But then there's one last step. To move on from our sin, we need God to restore us. Here's another way that David cried out this is in Psalm 32, that I'm going to get back to Psalm 51. But in Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1, he says this, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide and I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what we learned from today. We can be a person. We can be a man or woman after God's own heart, even though we sin. If we respond to our sin the right way, the difference is how you move forward from the sin. The difference is how you respond to it. That enables you to move forward. Listen to David's soul cry out to God as we pick it up back where we left off in Psalm 51, beginning of verse 10. Crying out to God, this point in history, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So here's what we do. We use God's word. We use believing friends to help us first recognize our sin. Then, because some people recognize it and, and still will not repent of it. They're just, no, I'm still doing this. We recognize our sin, then we repent of our sin. And when we do that, we realize that God will restore the joy of, of our salvation, his salvation that he gave us. And so we have to peel back the layers, 
peel back the layers of blindness, of bitterness, peel back the layers of pride, stubbornness, so we can see what we've done, so that we could recognize it, we can repent of it, and we can experience the joy of our salvation again. And then when we do that, we will be able to positively impact the people around us, the people who we love most, rather than hurting them, we will help them because they will see how we can have a vibrancy, a freedom, and a joy by experiencing God's forgiveness. And then we move on, not just move on, we move on from our sin with joy. Let's stand together. We'll pray. Caleb's going to come and lead us in a closing song. And before he does that, let's pray together. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the example of David who, who followed you with his whole heart and yet committed horrendous sin. God, you didn't leave him there. You pointed it out to him so he could recognize it, and then he could repent, and then you restored him so that he could move on with joy, and God, we all need that same thing. We thank you for his example. We thank you for his life. We thank you that we get to hear his soul cry out to you in Psalm 51, and God, we want to make that our cry to you. And we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your steadfast, unending love that you are always there to bring us, pull us back into relationship with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.